Gospel of John, the end of chapter 2. The Gospel of John at the end of chapter 2. We are continuing going through this Gospel of John together. And this morning we are coming uh, to the end of chapter 2 where we left off last week. And we're going to be ending chapter 2 this morning as well as moving into the beginning of chapter 3 together. And so what I want to do this morning is read with you, uh, beginning at chapter 2, verse 23, and we will read down to uh, chapter 3, verse 8. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verse 23, now when He, that is, Jer- that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in His name, and they saw the signs that He was doing. Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them, because He knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, Your Word is a word that penetrates into the depths of our souls and exposes our sin, brings to light our need for a divine work to take place within our lives. Your word is a sword that penetrates deeply and reveals to us the reality that we are dead in trespasses and sins, and thus we need a kind of resurrection to take place. Father, we we rejoice. We rejoice this morning at hearing the words of Jesus 
that this work that we need is a work that indeed the Spirit accomplishes. We need to be born again and the Spirit causes us to be born again. We need to be cleansed of sin and this too is a work that the Spirit does on our behalf. Father, we as well live in an age where there is a prevalence of false religion on every corner. Something as well that we see from Your Word. Father, we we pray that Your Word would work in such a way this morning that there would only be in this building true, lasting, enduring faith that brings us unto the end where we can hold on to and receive eternal life. Father, I pray that You would illuminate Your Word for us this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to arguably one of the most important passages in Scripture addressing the divine origin of the Christian life. It is a passage that unequivocally denies that becoming a believer, becoming a Christian, becoming a follower and disciple of Christ is simply a matter of deciding to embrace one religion over another. Or run one religion to the to the exclusion of no religion before. It repudiates the idea that conversion is just exchanging one set of beliefs for another set of beliefs. That conversion is just some natural process that takes place as the human reason and human intellect begins to embrace a whole other set of beliefs. This passage confronts us with the sobering truth of our total and complete deadness apart from the Spirit of God and the divine working of God, as well as the enlightening and the humbling truth that God, by His Spirit and in His mercy, gives life to such as these, to dead sinners. He makes them alive. As we come to the end of chapter 2, we begin to move into chapter 3, I think it's worth reviewing what we just went through in chapter 2 because chapter 2 and chapter 3 are very tightly connected. We should remember that the actual chapters and verses that we have in our Bibles were not written by John. They were added later in order to assist us and aid us in reading our Bibles and referencing our Bible. So just because there is a chapter 3 here in our Bibles doesn't mean that John intended for there to be a clean break between chapter 2 and chapter 3. They are very closely connected. We saw 
in chapter 2, last couple of weeks, two different occasions where Jesus did something to signal that the age of the Messiah had arrived in Him. And that the Old Testament promises what the prophets foretold was being fulfilled in Him. And in these two stories that we saw, we find two different responses to Jesus. So in the first part of chapter 2, we see the response of His disciples. They believed in Him. They saw the things He was doing. And they believed. Jesus was at a wedding in a place called Cana. And if you'll remember, He miraculously turned water into wine in the midst of this wedding. And we saw that this was not just some miracle that Jesus was performing for the sake of showing off and demonstrating that He could perform great wonders. It was actually an indication that He was giving, signaling this new age of the Messiah. That it was being ushered in in Him. So in the Old Testament, God had promised through the prophets that a day was coming when He would pour out blessings on His people. When He would remove from His people the curse. When He would remove His judgments against them because they had been a covenant-breaking people. They had been a sinful and rebellious people. And He had judged them and sent them into exile. And yet, with these prophets, He was speaking to His people and saying, a new day is coming. Day when the curse will be lifted and blessings will be poured forth upon you. And he says that he would cause the land to flourish. And this flourishing of the land was, was often described in imagery using the, the abundance of wine. Right? And this, this day when blessings would, would be poured forth, there would be an abundance of wine, which was a picture of celebration of festivities, right? Wine was meant for festivals and celebrations. And therefore, the new age of the Messiah would be an age of endless joy and celebration and worship and blessings from God. John tells us that Jesus' disciples saw Him perform this sign, changing water into wine And they believed in Him. Not just because they saw the sign, but because in that sign, Jesus was revealing His glory to them. So we read, He manifested His glory to them. They saw it and they believed. That was the right response. That is what John in his Gospel is encouraging us and all of his readers to respond. How to respond to Jesus. We believe. Then when we come to verses 12 and following, what we saw last week, we find a different response to Jesus. A response that some of the other Jews had towards Him. So on the second occasion, Jesus enters the temple and He finds that the place where God was to be worshipped and reverenced and and. And joy was to be 
present, this place of worship, this temple had been corrupted completely and turned into nothing more than a marketplace. So Jesus comes into the temple and He cleanses the temple. He removed all of the elements within the temple that were corrupting the worship of God. We saw there that some of the Jews, when they saw Jesus doing these things, challenged Him. Challenged Him about the very authority He had to do such a thing. They didn't believe in Him. That was their response. They didn't believe that He was the Christ, much less the Son of God, and therefore He did not have the authority to clean the temple. So they challenged Him to prove His authority by giving them a sign. We have these two responses in chapter 2. This is what John is giving us. On the one hand, the response of the disciples, we believe in Christ. We have seen His glory. We are seeing the beginnings of the new age of the Messiah. And on the other hand, we have those, some of those who are rejecting Him, who are challenging Him, who are not believing in Him. And generally speaking, these are the two kinds of responses to Jesus even today. Either you accept Jesus as your Christ and King, or you reject Him. At the end of the day, when it comes to eternity, those are the two responses. But John does give us a kind of third response to Jesus. One that really fits into the category of unbelief, but it's different nuance. It's a third category. It's a little more subtle. It can be deceptive. It can have the appearance of true religion and true piety. It's called false belief. And it's what John is illustrating for us next as we move into the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. So we have belief, We have unbelief, and now we have a kind of belief that's not saving. It's not true. It's not enduring faith. This is not, in this section of Scripture, this is not the only place we find this particular subject being addressed in the New Testament. This is not the only place where we find the difference between a true and a false faith being addressed. The entire letter of 1 John could arguably be summarized as a letter that is all about recognizing whether or not the faith one professes to have is true or false. Jesus Himself, in other places in the Gospels, repeatedly warns against the kind of faith that calls upon Him as Lord and is accompanied by a life of lawlessness and rebellion. Paul, in his letters to Timothy, warns him about the false teachers and their followers who will distort the Gospel believing that they are being faithful to the truths of God. All the false teachers and all the false teaching we come across in the New Testament, with all of these different teachings, 
No one is denying that Jesus is Lord. They are all saying that Jesus is the Christ. But what they are teaching about Him in some way or another is deficient and inadequate. The Galatian heresy was not a heresy that denied the Lordship of Jesus. It was one that added to His accomplished work on the cross and thus distorted the Gospel. Scripture speaks to this this subject many, many times because this subject is a matter of eternal importance. This is what everything hinges upon. Our standing before a holy God depends upon whether or not we possess a true, saving, enduring faith. John writes his Gospel so that we might truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that by believing in this way, we might have life in His name. So it shouldn't be surprising to find John illustrating the difference for us between belief, unbelief, and a false belief. The last of which we see in our passage this morning. So John begins by telling us in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, that there were some among the Jews who were believing in Jesus. They were probably outwardly professing a trust in Jesus. Yet, he says, they were those whom Jesus Himself did not entrust Himself to because He saw what was truly in them. Literally, it says they were believing in Jesus. Jesus was not believing in them. Then as we enter into chapter 3, John uses Nicodemus as an illustration of this kind of false belief that was present among the people. This inadequate belief. So he says in verse 25 that Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Then immediately in chapter 3, verse 1, He says, now there was a man of the Pharisees. You see the connection there. There were those believing in Jesus whose belief was lacking in some sense. Jesus knew it because He knew what was in man. Then He says, now there was a man. A certain man. Nicodemus of the Pharisees. Nicodemus here is an illustration of a false faith. An inadequate faith. And in this example we have here, we learn a couple of important marks of what a false faith consists of. It's not exhaustive here, but there are at least two things we can point to to see what a false faith looks like. First, it relies on signs. It relies on signs. It's the kind of belief that requires something miraculous. It requires a proof from God, a special 
prove from Him to you a piece of experiential evidence that demonstrates God's presence. It's a demand. This has to be present for me to believe in the truths of God. John says in verse 23, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs He was doing. They believed when when they saw the signs. Now there's nothing wrong with signs in and of themselves. There's nothing inherently evil about signs or looking to signs or miracles. They actually do serve a very good purpose. In fact, John, as we read through his Gospel, is very careful to point certain signs out to us. It was one of the things we saw in the beginning of chapter 2. The first sign Jesus performed was in Cana at Galilee when He changed the water into wine. But their purpose, the purpose of signs, is not to be a requirement without which we will not believe in God. Their purpose is to reinforce and to deepen our trust in Christ. we, We believe in Jesus. He has spoken His Word to us. We have heard His Gospel. We have believed in the simplicity of the Word. The message. The authority of the Word we have accepted. The signs and the miracles that Jesus has performed, is they are meant only to deepen that belief we have. To give us more structure. To build up our faith and strengthen it. But they are not meant to be a requirement without which we will not believe. That appears to be one of the problems that was going on with some of the Jews as they believed in Jesus. Their belief demanded a sign. Required a sign. And without the sign, there would be a refusal to believe. They would reject it. So for example, we saw last week that after Jesus cleansed the temple, the Jews said to Him in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authority do you have, Jesus, for doing these things? They were demanding that He perform some miracle for them to prove His authority as the Son of God to them. It's very much as though they had placed themselves in the position of the devil himself. Jesus had gone into the wilderness and the devil came to him, you remember, and he brings him to the pinnacle of the temple and he says to him, he tests him and he says, if, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He's testing him. Prove it, Jesus. That's what they were saying. Prove, prove that you are the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, by giving us a sign. Or take as another example the Pharisees in Mark chapter 8. Jesus had just miraculously and graciously fed around 4,000 
people with nothing more than seven loaves of bread and a few pieces of fish. He had just performed a great sign. And then we find in Mark chapter 8 that the Pharisees come to Him and in verse 11 we read that they come to Him arguing with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven to test Him. To test Him. They will only believe if they if, if Jesus does what they are demanding Him to do for them. That's what false faith does. It's always seeking some miraculous demonstration or some miraculous vent or some miraculous kind of experience. It's not satisfied in simply trusting the words of God. That's why it's insufficient. It will not trust in His simple Word what He says. Now the other mark of a false faith we see here is the kind of faith that simply relies upon the practice of formal religion. John says in verse 1 of chapter 3 that Nicodemus was not just a man like the other men who had believed in Jesus when they saw His signs, but He was a man of the Pharisees. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, many of you are probably familiar with the Pharisees. They were the religious elite of the day. They were those who outwardly at least, some of them indeed were some true believers. Nicodemus, as we will find later in John's Gospel becomes a true believer, but many of them were not. They believed they were. They believed they were followers of the God of Israel. They had devised all of these different traditions. They tithed. They gave their money to the poor. They prayed in public. All indications were that these religious people were the people of God. If you want to know God, you have to become like this one. Like a Pharisee. They were the religious elite. But their problem, as Jesus points out repeatedly, their problem was that they completely relied on their adherence to their own traditions. They had a formal, outward religion. And within their hearts, they were dead. Indeed, Jesus spoke some of the strongest words against the Pharisees. He said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's an outward, formal religion. Within the heart, it's as dead as a dead corpse can be. Now, There's a lot of that kind of faith nowadays. Especially especially within the American South. We have a great, great culture 
of Christian traditions. We have a a, a cultural Christianity that many have called nominal Christianity. Christian in name only. It is a formal, outward religion that may cause you to advance in the political realm. It may cause you to look great before your neighbors. It may demonstrate that you are a moral person. It will lead you straight to hell. We have a lot of that kind of religion these days. I was looking just last night at last year's annual report, the Warren Association of Baptists. My brother Tim helped put that together last year, and they just recently finished the one for this upcoming year. One of the things that stood out to me was the amount of resident church members of Southern Baptist churches in Warren County. Of the resident church members, those who are living here and who are members of a Southern Baptist church in Warren County, there are 22,544. 22,544 in Warren County alone. Now, I don't know the whole population of Warren County. I know the population of Bowling Green is 62,000. I think many of those churches are within Bowling Green. So we have 62,000 as the population of Bowling Green, 22,000 resident church members. That's just Southern Baptists. That's not including Presbyterians and Methodists and what other denomination we might point to. In all actuality, if the numbers are right, Bowling Green should at least be half Christian. Truly born again, on fire for Christ, zealous for the things of God. But I don't think that we could say with any confidence that one out of every two people is truly a Christian. One of the things that was also revealing in the report is that out of the 22,000 resident church members, 13,000 went to church. Just a little over half. And that's just in Bowling Green, in Warren County. This is a kind of religion we have all throughout the South. We have created a religion of Christian tradition. We have many, many who are relying on these traditions to justify themselves before God. We live in an age where we have created many of these traditions in order to justify ourselves before God. Have I been baptized? Check it off. Have I prayed a prayer asking Jesus to come into my heart? Have I walked down an aisle? Have I joined a church? Though I'm not actually committed to the body of Christ in any particular location, do I at least watch a sermon on TV occasionally or stream one from the Internet? We create lots of different traditions that become the check marks like the Pharisees. We mark them off. We're good. We're secure. I don't believe any of these particular things are necessarily evil in themselves. Certainly we commend baptism. We are Baptists. But they become very evil indeed when we look to them as the proof of our justification before God. 
maybe it is that many have been living, as Jesus says, in lawlessness, that inwardly they are full of hypocrisy. Yet, when questioned, do I know Christ, they look back, have I been baptized? Did I make a profession of faith at one time? There's my evidence. Yes, I'm a Christian. That's when these traditions become very evil indeed because they become deceptive. When we do that, when we rely on these particular issues or these particular traditions, we have gone the way of the Pharisee. We have created an extra-biblical, formal religion of traditions which excuse us in our lives of ungodliness. We have created an outward appearance of righteousness while within we may indeed be full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This was Nicodemus' problem. At least at this point in his life, he didn't understand that formal religion and the keeping of traditions was not what he needed. Obeying the commands of the traditions and the elders and the scribes was not what he needed. Because all of these things are external. None of these things have anything to do with what was in, what was within Nicodemus' heart. What he needed went far deeper. What he needed was life. He needed life. His problem is the problem of all men. By nature, Scripture teaches us, by nature, we are spiritually dead. There is literally no capability to do that which is pleasing to God by nature because we have no heart that is sensitive to the things of God. By nature, we love darkness. We desire to pursue sin, lusts, self-interest. That is where our heart is. And so the Gospel can be preached. Many signs and wonders can be performed, just as Jesus did. And we can have hearts that would rather crucify Him than embrace Him as Savior. That is what we are by nature. Spiritually dead. And thus, we need new life. So Jesus... Knowing the reality of Nicodemus' deadness teaches him about the necessity of a new birth, of a new beginning, of a new life. And in his conversation with Nicodemus, we learn three very important truths about the new birth here. First, the new birth is heavenly in origin. It is heavenly in origin. Look with me again at verses 2 to 4. Speaking of Nicodemus, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Clearly, Nicodemus is taking this statement Jesus made very literally. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So, Nicodemus is latching on to what he just heard. A new birth, born again. Which is why he asked Jesus this question. How exactly does this work? He's thinking in very earthly, natural terms. This, this can't actually happen. How do, you, how do you get born a second time? In one respect... One respect, Jesus is speaking about a second birth, though it's different in its origin. In one respect, he is speaking about a second birth. But as we have seen, as we've gone throughout John's gospel, very often Jesus has multiple meanings in the things he is speaking of, which is exactly what he is doing here. He is speaking about a second birth. But that birth he is speaking of has a completely different origin than the natural birth we all have. Which is something that Nicodemus doesn't quite pick up on initially. So This is what I mean. As you look to what Jesus is saying, He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now when He says born again, He uses a word there for again that can have two meanings. It can mean either born again a second time or born from above, which is both. The meaning that he is trying to convey here is both. Not only must you have a new life created within you, a second kind of birth, but this birth must come from above. It must be an act of God. This is one of the things we saw John talk about in John chapter 1, verse 14 following, or just before verse 14, I think in verse 13, where he says that those who had received Christ were children, not by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but those who were born of God. That is what Jesus is speaking about here. Our new birth must have a heavenly origin. Second, he says, The new birth is the work of the Spirit. So that naturally follows. It must come from heaven and it is also a work of the Spirit. So look with me at verse 5 and 6. Jesus answered this question of Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. So this is just a clarification of what He just said, you must be born again. Now it's phrased as you must be born of water and the Spirit. Unless this happens, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now there's a long tradition within the Christian church spanning many different denominations, spanning within... Roman Catholicism, even down to the church of Christ. Long history of interpretation that says when Jesus says one must be born of water and the Spirit, He is speaking about two things. Two different things. Number one, He must be baptized. He must experience a Christian 
baptism. And then number two, there's also a work of the Spirit that takes place. Now, there's several different reasons why I would reject that. There's grammatical reasons. There's theological reasons. But I think one is just contextually. As we look in the passage of Scripture that we are in and we come to verses 9 and 10, Nicodemus is confused still about what Jesus is talking about. And he asks him, how can these things be? And Jesus rebukes him in a sense saying, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is saying, I'm not teaching anything new. You should be completely aware of what I'm talking about. Nicodemus, you are a ruler of the Israelites. You are a Pharisee. You are a teacher. You should know your Old Testament, Nicodemus. What Jesus is speaking about here is a reference to something that was prophesied in the past. So what does He mean then? Water and the Spirit. One must be born of water and the Spirit. Well, there's really only one place in the Old Testament, where both of these ideas come together. Water and the Spirit. Which is in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22-28. to The passage that was read earlier for us from Steve. Ezekiel 36 is in the context of judgment. The people of God have been sent into exile because they have rejected Him. They have gone after the idols. They have embraced the worship of the surrounding nations, and so God has brought judgment against them and sent them into exile. And yet, while they're in exile, God gives to them great, glorious promises about what He will do to them and for them in the future. And one of the things He says to them is in Ezekiel chapter 36, and He tells them of a day that will be coming in verses 24 and 25, where he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's going to rescue them for a second time out of exile. Just as he had done before, just as he had rescued them out of the land of Egypt, now he's going to rescue them out of the land of Babylon. And he's going to bring them back into their own land. And then he says... I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Then in verse 27, And I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. This is what Jesus is teaching about. This is why Nicodemus should have known what he was speaking about. Because Ezekiel was telling of the day of the Messiah. The day of the new covenant. The day when God would do what His people could not do. He Himself will cleanse them of their sin. And He Himself will give to them His Spirit. That is what Jesus is saying. One must be born of water. They must be cleansed of their sin. They must be born of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who cleanses them of sin. It is the Spirit who gives them life. It is the Spirit who causes them to be born again. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the promises of Ezekiel have arrived in me. 
in my spirit. Third, the new birth. The new birth is created by the free will of God. It's heavenly in origin. It's a work of the Spirit. And it's also created by the free will of God. Or, to put it another way, it happens by the free will of God. Look in verse 7 and 8 again. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus about the necessity for something to happen to him that is completely out of his control. A new birth. He has been teaching him about this new birth by the Spirit, which Nicodemus has as much control over as he did his natural birth. Now, here in verses 7 and 8, Jesus doesn't choose to qualify His teaching. He doesn't attempt to mitigate its apparent implications. He doesn't try to walk it back a little bit and say to Nicodemus, I I know that I've just, what I've just said seems to strip you of any and all control over your eternity. So let me just alleviate some of your concerns and tell you about some of the things you can do, Nicodemus, to enter the kingdom of God. No, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus rather chooses to reinforce this teaching with an illustration. He points to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't control it. You don't tame it. You don't make it. You don't command it. It is completely free of your influence. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, he says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need new life. Your dead heart needs to be resurrected. And what you need, you can't produce. You can't do it. Only God in His freedom, apart from anything you might do, can grant that life. Only the power of God. Friends, if that sounds like a hard truth, Except because it strips us of any control we might have. It's meant to be. It's meant to be. Jesus here is undercutting every notion we might be tempted to have that salvation is the result of anything we have done. He is forcing our hand into a complete and total reliance on the sovereignty of God, which is the way it ought to be. Moving us in the direction of absolute dependence upon God. Friends, let me ask you a question. Why do you think prayer is so important? 
Why do you think prayer is so important? Especially when it comes to the salvation of souls. Why do we pray for friends or family members to be saved? Why do we pray for our co-workers who don't know Christ for them to be saved as we communicate the Gospel to them? We pray those prayers because it's only God who can do it. We can't. We can share the Gospel over and over again. We can give the finest apologetic lesson. We can give all the reasons and all the rational arguments for why Jesus is the Christ. But unless God Himself intervenes supernaturally, nothing will happen. It will fall on deaf ears. There will not be a heart that is willing and able to receive what it's hearing. That's why we pray. Prayer, friends, is a matter of being absolutely desperate before God. Prayer is a crying out of desperation. God, I can't bring this about. We don't pray for things we are confident we can do ourselves. At least that's not how we are taught to pray. We pray for only the things God can do. Which is everything. But especially, especially when it comes to the salvation of souls. We go to God because He is the one who has the power to raise the dead to new life. Friends, I just want to close by asking you this morning. Have you, in desperation, not in confidence, not because your, your mind has become convinced of some truths that you have heard, but have you in desperation cast yourself upon the mercies of God? Have you looked within your heart and seen what Scripture reveals to us is a world of utter darkness. And seen that there is no way, no way that I can transform my heart to be in the image of Christ. That I can make my heart pursue the will of God to the extent that Jesus Himself did so. It's dark. It's dead. Have you come to the point where you have seen that level of desperation and cast yourself on the mercies of God and cried out, Lord, I can't do it. I can't believe. Help my unbelief. Have you come to that place? That's, that's where conversion is. That's when the Spirit is working. It's not when our emotions are stirred. It's not when we are just commanded to do some particular act of obedience. It's when we come to a point of absolute desperation. Lord, I see my life in light of eternity. And in myself, it's bleak. But I've heard the good news. I've heard the message 
I have seen that You have sent Your Son to die for such as me. Lord, give me a heart. Give me a heart to believe. Has that been Your experience? Friends, that is what the Bible calls us to. To come to the end of ourselves so that God will raise us anew. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess our complete dependence on You. Everything we have in Christ, every promise, every joy, every word we read, is a gift You have given to us. Whatever small amount of belief we may have, whatever small amount of trust we have in Christ, Lord, we confess is not the result of the power of our own wills, but is simply the result of Your grace and the Spirit of God within us. Father, teach us to depend upon You for all things. As, as we are a people who have been called out of the world to live in the world but not be of the world, to be those who, who imitate and follow Christ in this world, Father, Father, help us recognize our complete dependence upon Your Spirit. <clears throat> that it is the Spirit who caused us to be born again initially and it is only the Spirit who will bring us to You in the end. Give us this kind of belief, we pray in Jesus' name.